Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy Podcast with me, Alison Perry. My guest today is Emma Svanberg, who is a perinatal psychologist and the co-founder of Make Birth Better. Around 30% of all women find some aspect of their birth traumatic, which equates to around 200,000 women per year. Emma and I discuss what birth trauma is, what it can feel like, how it can be prepared for or prevented and how it can be treated. We discuss in detail birth experiences and birth trauma, so please take time to make sure that you're ready to listen to this today. Perhaps listen with someone with you and if it feels too much or too distressing, stop listening and put yourself first. So if you're ready to listen, here's my chat with Emma. So I'm here with Emma Svanberg. Have I said that right? Oh, I always yeah. try and check the pronunciation of my guests' names before we start and I didn't do it. So Emma Svanberg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, so you are a perinatal psychologist mm-hmm. um, and you're on Instagram as the mumologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard you speaking before about how you've got this aim to try and make... Um, I guess, psychology a bit more accessible. Would that be a a good way of describing what you do? Yeah, I think I started blogging about seven years ago because when I work with mums, mostly mums and some dads as well, um, what I tended to find was that the same themes come up time and time again. So essentially it was about getting some of those ideas out of the clinic room and into a bit more of an accessible space. I guess that's the thing, isn't it, is that what you're dealing with is real life. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, people's experiences So to only be talking about those experiences, you know, at the doctor's clinic or in a hospital doesn't really feel very realistic or helpful, does it? No, and I think what you find in this this line of work is that people do share the same kind of ideas and themes over and over again and everyone feels very much that they're on their own with them. So I think just being a, and which is something that actually Instagram does so well, you know, it's really spread the idea that actually everyone has a shared experience of motherhood and parenthood. And, um... I think just being able to kind of touch on some of those key themes can be really helpful in just letting people know that what they're going through is not unusual, that actually it's within the normal range a lot of the time, because people can suffer for months on their own without realising that what they're going through is a shared experience of parenthood. Yeah. I mean, what would you say, would you you say that social media is more of a force for good 
when it comes to That's this? An interesting question. Or <laughs> is it part of the problem? Like how much is it actually creating yes. a problem with mental health? I think it's both. I think it's both. I think that it has a really positive function because I think it can create communities and we do live in times where it can feel really hard to access people directly face to face. I think that there is a danger because we can feel that we're connecting on a human level because we're talking to people via social media or WhatsApp or whatever, that we then don't feel that we need to go and see them in real life. And actually, Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp cannot replace what it feels like to actually be sitting in a room with somebody and have them be with you and touch you and, you know, hug you if necessary. So I think that it can sort of build communities up to a point. But I think there's also all of the stuff that's been talked about so many times around comparison as well. I think on the one hand, it's really you know, raised people's awareness of what is a normal experience. But if I'm looking at parenthood, particularly, you know, you've got people like yourself and um, loads of other kind of mum bloggers and people on Instagram who show what the reality is of life with children. And actually that on its own is so helpful because up until, really up until Instagram, we didn't have images of what that looked like. Yeah, we didn't, did we? I mean, because everyone had their, their own little Facebook feeds where they connected with people that they new in yes, real life yeah mostly. it was around real life friendships usually um and then you had twitter which was yeah. very kind of wordy yes but yeah. yeah instagram really has been the kind of changing point hasn't yeah, it where yeah. you get that real visual feel yes. of other people's lives yeah i mean absolutely it's, it's not their real lives is it it's no it's often a, a snapshot <laughs> yes absolutely but i think then the downside and in mental health particularly i think there's been loads of awareness raising people talking about what their experience is also people talking about what can help them what help what they haven't found so helpful too but I think there's also a danger of um only showing the slightly messy stuff okay so people don't often show the really the stuff that feels really messy and uncomfortable why do you think that is because it's messy and uncomfortable and I think that people are able to show their vulnerability up to a point mm. I mean there are people who do expose their whole lives on Instagram and there can be a real downside to that too you know sometimes you see people and you worry a little bit about what the impact is of that level of exposure but I think then it can feel I think for particularly for people who've had maybe longer standing history of mental health problems that actually their experience still isn't represented yeah. on things like that so I think it can be helpful up to a point but I think that you know real life can, can connections can never be left behind yeah. and also just I think when you're using social media you always have to be aware of why you're on there and what is it that you're looking for and if you're there connecting with people feed you know leaving your phone and feeling like yeah that was a really good experience I feel you know a bit validated or I feel empowered to go and do something differently then great if you come off and you're just feeling like a zombie then obviously there's something that might maybe needs addressing there I did this thing the other day where um somebody who I really really like um I muted them on Instagram right yeah. because I found myself at uh 3am tossing and turning in bed feeling like um I comparing myself yes, and feeling yes, inadequate. Yeah. And I just thought, this is bonkers. Why am I doing this? Yeah. I'm just going to meet them. And I'm not going to unfollow because I don't dislike this person. The problem is absolutely with me and mm. not with this person. I'm going to mute for a little while until I get over whatever this is, whatever mm. that feeling of inadequacy is, this yeah. comparison thing going on. Mm -hmm. And then I'll probably unmute her again. Did you see that they're doing a trial somewhere where they are hiding the number of likes I from saw people's that, yeah. photos? And I thought that was such a good idea. Yeah. I wish they would go a step further and also 
also hide the followers that people mm. have so that everyone's just on there as part of the same kind of community. Do you know what? I would love that. And I bet people probably hear, you know, hear someone saying that and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're just saying that you would love that. But I genuinely would. I'm, I've never been one of those people who I don't place value on how many followers somebody has. Mm. Like I... I will follow someone if they've got 200 followers, mm-hmm. but I like them and I like what they're yes. saying yeah. um, just as much as somebody who might have 100,000 followers. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't sit well with me, the whole kind of, oh, you're important. Yes. Like if yeah. I'm at, you know, if I'm in a room of people, I will not seek out that person who mm. has loads of followers. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm much more interested in just speaking to nice people. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you get that kind of funny thing, don't you, where you, there's a kind of sort of mini world that exists on Instagram. And actually, in a way, it is a reflection of society, right? So society is also hierarchical in that way, where people often kind of look to others or there are people who are kind of seen as more leaders, for example. But I think that that can create that kind of sense of in-groups and out-groups. And yeah. if you're in the out-group, then that can feel like a really uncomfortable place to be. Yeah, I think. I think so I think so and I think that it's just it's just nice to just you know rather than like it, it kind of reminds me of being back at school and you yes. think oh that you know like the cool kids and I was like the most unpopular person practically <laughs> in my year at school um and so I would never want to be kind of part of anything that yeah. would make other people feel yes, left out mm. and oh I'm not I'm not cool enough to be you know to chat to them mm. you know um but I mean Going back to, you know, mental health and, you know, all the kind of stuff that goes with it with motherhood, I think it's probably fair to say that having a baby mm-hmm. can really mess with your mind, yes, can't it? It can really course, mess with yeah. your head. Yeah. Um, what are the kind of things that, me- that you know, that's kind of typical for, for a mum, a new mum to go through? Um, I think this is being talked about so much more than it was when I first qualified, which was sort of 10 years ago now, um, which is amazing. I think now when I write things, actually, I often find that other people have written similar things. There's definitely more of a conversation around what those kind of typical experiences are. And actually, one person who I turn to quite a lot is Alexandra Sachs, who's a psychiatrist in the United States. And she talks about this concept of matrescence. And it's essentially saying that when we become mums, it's a very similar process to what we go through when we become adolescents. So we go through the same identity shifts. You know, if you think about what happens to you, everything in your world just turns completely upside down. So all of your relationships change, your physical body changes, your relationship with your body changes, what you're doing in your day to day life changes, your friendships change just how you're spending your routine and then add into all of that the fact that you then are responsible for this tiny very needy human being there it is literally that your whole world has been turned upside down I think that where that can become problematic for people is that that is really not recognized oh, it really isn't and, and, and there prob- sorry to um, interrupt no, okay. but there, there okay. probably isn't really any way that you can fully prepare yourself for no. that even if someone's listening to this and thinking right well I'm writing down everything that Emma's saying so I'm going to be ready mm-hmm. I'm going to be ready for this mm-hmm. you're still not going to be ready for it because it's just such a huge yeah. shift in the same way that you're not ready to become a teenager yeah. you know and that can lead to real emotional turmoil and in the same way for for many women and also for many dads they have that same experience of emotional turmoil you know it can really leave you questioning your identity you know who am I now that I'm not a single person anymore what is it that I want to do with my life 
life. Maybe my priorities have changed. You know, how safe and secure do I feel in the relationship that I had before? So all of those things can really, really shift. I think that where you can prepare for it is by asking for help. And that's something that... I think there's, I often think of things as layers. Like I think that there is this one layer of matrescence that happens to everybody when they become a parent. And I think we often talk about it in terms of mums, but dads go through similar processes. They have some differences in the way that it can be manifested. But so there's that kind of normal experience for everybody. I think then we can add on then your sort of individual factors. So how you've dealt with things in the past. So that might be around what you bring to motherhood or to parenthood. So that might be around your own experience of being parented. You know, how do you feel about your experiences as a child? Often they can really come up for us when we become parents and they can suddenly feel very raw. A lot of people talk about suddenly having memories back that they hadn't had for a long time. Mm. It can be really difficult if you have had a difficult relationship with your own parents or caregivers to see them interact with your own children because it can really touch that part of you that maybe doesn't feel quite resolved about what happened to you. And then a lot of people now, it's very common to feel quite perfectionistic about things. So we have a tendency, particularly in this country and uh, and in the West in general, to think that we need to cope with things on our own. So there's very much this idea that, okay, it's difficult, but regardless, I need to appear like I'm coping. I'm going to be the super mum. So Anya Hayes talks a lot about the super mum and the super mum myth book that she wrote, which is brilliant. It's it's a really good book. I recommend it to most of my clients find that book really, really helpful. And um. Yeah, essentially, then we've got that as an added layer, you know, so not only are we dealing with this huge identity transformation, but we're then doing it while trying to admit that we're completely fine. Mm. And there's those beautiful cartoons from Brooklyn Rabbit that come up on Instagram from the Postpartum Stress Centre. So they really beautifully depict that mismatch between what we present to the world and actually what's going on in our minds. So there's lots of things on there, like, you know, somebody asking, how is it going? for example and the the stock answer for most mums is yeah I'm fine while in your head you're thinking well actually I haven't slept for three days I can't have a shower on my own I haven't even had a cup of tea my sex life has disappeared I hate my body you know all of these things that are just going on why do we do that why do we I mean I've I've done it as well I remember vividly a few months ago going to my eldest daughter's Christmas fair at school and quite a few people saying to me how are you doing Mm -hmm. yeah I'm fine I'm fine fine. yeah but inside I was so tired I wanted Mm -hmm. to cry Mm -hmm. Why do we do that? Um, well, I've got many hypotheses. <laughs> <laughs> We've got time. Come on. Um, I think the main thing that comes to my mind is that we don't like to deal with vulnerability. You know, we we are brought up in what has been a historically quite emotionally repressed culture. Mm-hmm. And that is changing. You know, people are talking a little bit more about their emotional worlds, but it's still really new and I think it's still being done quite tentatively there are people who talk more openly about their emotions but there's often quite a backlash against that because I think the general message is still you know stiff upper lip we should be okay and we should be coping and we don't need to burden people air our dirty laundry in public all of those kind of messages that we were probably all brought up with So I think that's what we're up against. And it, it, you, you really have to unpack some of those messages before you can feel able to share something that feels very, very vulnerable. 
and also to choose who you're going to do that with because if everyone around you has that same attitude then when you do say actually I'm exhausted and I'm really struggling what you might get met with oh but you'll be okay and then you're much more likely to just pack it down even further and just not go there and and what we know is that when you do that when you push those difficult feelings away actually they just pop up at other times so those are the times when you end up shouting at your kids at 6 30 in the evening because actually you've been stressed since nine o'clock in the morning but nobody's been there to be able to un- unleash some of that burden mm. so it pops out at other times oh being a mum's hard isn't it's it just so hard. you just describe this i'm just like oh i really feel for that mum well we're all that mum I know. yeah i know many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Um, okay, so you, you, you deal a, a lot with um, birth trauma. So mm-hmm. you, you founded Make Birth Better. You co-founded it, didn't yes, you? Yes, yes. So tell us a little bit about Make Birth Better. Uh, so that is, uh, it, we are now a community interest company, So, oh. which is kind of a new thing. Um, it's It's grown massively over the past year, I think, way beyond we ever thought it would be. So I co-founded it with my lovely colleague, um, Rebecca Moore, who's a perinatal psychiatrist. And um, we actually used to work together in Tower Hamlets many years ago. Um, and we sort of found each other again on Instagram. And Becca is a birth trauma specialist and is kind of known internationally for her work with birth trauma. Um, and she runs a, a annual conference on birth trauma. Um, and I sort of got into birth trauma more recently. And I think just through realising that that was what linked a lot of my the parents who came to see me, that linked a lot of their experiences. And I think what was really interesting for me was that I did this post on Instagram, which is now kind of in 2017, during Birth Trauma Awareness Week, just outlining the difference between postnatal depression and PTSD after birth. And I was absolutely astounded by how many people wrote to me and said, well, I was diagnosed with postnatal depression, but actually I think that I was traumatised. So what, what is, briefly, if, if you can, yes, if you sure, can sure. describe it briefly, what, what is the difference? Between PTSD and postnatal depression. Yeah. So they're a completely different set of symptoms, but PTSD is often misdiagnosed as postnatal depression. So with postnatal depression, the kind of marking, marking symptom is that you have a low mood. That can be different for different people. So sometimes people feel flat sometimes people feel that they just don't really have an interest in things they're not finding pleasure in things sometimes actually people can feel 
angry, so angrier than they would normally. And it, the the key is that this is different to how you would normally feel. Um, so if you're always flat, angry, might, or some people are just always quite flat in their yeah. moods. You know, they're just kind of more low level yeah. kind of people. And um, but also you'd you'd notice things like your appetite might change, your um, libido might change, your sleep would be disrupted. So those are kind of typical symptoms of postnatal depression. Um, with post-traumatic stress disorder, you'd be actually seeing something that feels much more um, heightened. So you'd feel kind of your threat response basically is just on all the time. So essentially what trauma is, is um, it, it leaves you feeling that you're not safe. So okay. you have had an experience at some point where you have felt in danger, that your life is in danger or the life of somebody that you love is in danger. And what happens during that experience is the amygdala, which is this little almond shaped bit of our brain. That's the kind of alarm system in our brain that switches on. And when that happens, it shuts down our frontal lobes, which are all of the bits of us that are involved in planning, in kind of rational, wise thinking, the kind of more adult reasoning parts of our brain. Brain, that shuts off because we just go into survival mode. Okay. So at that point, our brain thinks that there is a tiger running at us and we just need to escape or fight it off. And when, you, when you've been through a traumatic experience, you can kind of get stuck there. So you will continue to feel that you are in danger or that your baby is in danger or that somebody that you love is in danger. So if you imagine living with those symptoms all the time, essentially you are always feeling under threat. So you might feel very jumpy, you might feel quite anxious, quite agitated. You might get irritated with people. And um, often there will also be an associated mood change. So you might have some flatness in your mood, but often that would also be linked to this kind of hypervigilance where you feel very up. Mm. Um, and the key thing is that you will have been through a traumatic experience. The difficulty with birth trauma is that we don't tend to think of birth as a negative or traumatic experience. So you might come out of it thinking, actually, I feel really shaken up. I don't feel okay. And then you might go to a GP and, and describe your symptoms, but not knowing that that experience is something that has been traumatic. Mm -hmm. Actually, what many people will, will just hear is, okay, your mood's been affected. You're feeling a bit anxious. Okay, you've probably got postnatal depression. So really what me and Becca were hoping to do was raise awareness of... Um, so we came together kind of after that the campaign that I ran back in 2017 and just had discussions over how still, despite the fact that we've both been working in this field, Becca for 20 years, me for 10 years, there's still so little awareness out there about what birth trauma actually is. Yeah. I mean, there are organisations, so the Birth Trauma Association is absolutely fantastic in supporting women after a difficult birth um, but I think what we felt was that we wanted to see more work around preventing birth trauma so lots of the research shows that birth trauma is very much related to interpersonal factors I'm telling you a lot of information very quickly no, no, so it's great. Stop me if, um, I'm loving it but um one of the links in all of the research is that um, birth trauma is often associated with difficulties in relationships with people around you at the time of the birth. So it may not be that you felt unsafe because of a physical problem. So let's say an emergency C-section. So that might be linked to birth trauma too. But it might also be a sense of kind of that you didn't feel safe psychologically. Okay. So that might be that you had a midwife who was really hostile. 
or that your obstetrician came in and you felt that they were really aggressive towards you. Mm -hmm. It might also be that you felt abandoned. So there doesn't need to be a sort of active hostility. It might just also be that you felt very left on your own, feeling very vulnerable. Lots of people talk about, for example, internal examinations that might have felt very violating. Um, So all of those things can be linked to feeling traumatised afterwards. And the key thing is, is that it's not necessarily the experience itself that matters. It's how you felt about it. And I read one thing on your website about um, people can suffer from birth trauma even when on paper their birth went absolutely yes, fine absolutely because it's about your interpretation of that event and you might have a really straightforward birth you know it might look like a really straightforward physiological delivery but if you felt unsupported and scared and unsafe then you can go on to have symptoms of trauma it's interesting. That's not to say that you will do but certainly again there are lots of different factors so if you feel supported afterwards then you'll be less likely to develop traumatic symptoms yeah. And again, it's all about kind of how that's responded to. So interestingly, I think what I find a lot with clients is that they, if they've had a difficult birth, so what looks on paper to be a difficult birth with lots of intervention or an emergency C-section that they weren't expecting, that's left them feeling really, you know, kind of reeling from the shock of it. Often there will be more support for them afterwards. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll be offered debriefing sessions. People will ask them, how are you feeling about your birth? So they get an opportunity to process it. And it might have been a difficult situation, but it doesn't necessarily go on to become a traumatic one. Whereas people who have had what looks like on paper, relatively easy, straightforward delivery, everybody will then say, oh, well, that was great. And they, they, the mismatch between what their experience was and what they're actually feeling becomes so great. Nobody invites those conversations with them. So they just go on feeling that what they're feeling is not acceptable. And then it becomes much harder to then go and share that with somebody. I think that's exactly what happened to me with my first birth with, mm-hmm. um, with my eldest. It was completely normal, you know, on paper, mm-hmm. normal delivery. But didn't feel very normal to me Mm. (laughs) you know it felt like one of the most traumatic experiences of my life yeah yeah um and and still to this date still does Mm. um and so you know in the years that followed if if anyone ever said to me you know what what was what was your birth like and that would be my answer on paper it was absolutely it you know it was textbook but yeah it was a little bit it was it wasn't a great it wasn't a great experience for me what was it about it do you think that (laughs) that that stayed with you um Oh, do you know what? I can't even remember. I feel like I feel like I've kind of I've kind of closed the door on it yes, a bit. You've I had a it. I had a um, a birth debrief right um, when I was pregnant last year. Mm-hmm. It was um, something that um, Clemmy Hooper recommended yes. I do actually. Yeah. So I was chatting to her and sh- she's a midwife and she said, um, "Did you know that you you can do this?" Mm-hmm. And so I requested it and they got my notes and we went through it all and it absolutely was completely normal. Right. I think yeah. it was just me feeling not prepared for yes, it and yeah. just feeling like you know this it's just such a huge thing mm. for your body and mind to go through mm. so what are the things that we can do to prepare you said that you and Rebecca are doing a lot of work on you know how to prevent yes. birth trauma what are the things that, that, that people can do Well, I think actually where we're starting is looking at professionals. So I think that there's a lot of emphasis at the moment on us as individuals preparing ourselves for positive birth experiences. But actually, 
that becomes very hard to do if we don't feel supported within whatever setting we're in to give birth. And I think, you know, what what is on offer at the moment is a, around kind of individualised care. So we know that people might come out of a difficult experience like you did and then maybe be offered a birth debrief. What we also know at the moment is lots of professionals don't feel skilled enough to offer them. And actually the evidence on debriefs is really mixed. So some people find them very useful. Some people find them actively unhelpful. And lots of people are kind of somewhere in the middle. So we're looking at kind of lots of different aspects of that maternity journey and thinking about what we could introduce at different points that would make that a more positive, trauma-informed experience. So by trauma-informed, I mean an awareness that everybody has that this can potentially be a traumatic experience. People might also have had a previous history of trauma. So we know from the research that people who've had previously traumatic experiences that they may not necessarily think of as traumatic experiences are more likely to experience birth as traumatic as well. So what kind of things do you mean there? Well, anything that you feel unresolved about. It might be something really obvious, like an experience of childhood sexual abuse. And we know that if people have had those kind of experiences, just the normal practices around pregnancy and birth can be extremely triggering. And often, if we're not seeing the same midwife all the time, if we don't feel safe to disclose that information to our midwives, we won't tell anybody that. So it's something that will really hit us during the birth process itself. But it might also just be feeling unresolved about other things. So if we feel, for example that um, it's not okay to be vulnerable for whatever reason, that we're not going to be looked after when we're vulnerable, which a lot of people have that kind of experience, then all of a sudden being in labour where you are in essence in an incredibly vulnerable position, not feeling looked after by the people around you, that in itself can feel quite, quite difficult and potentially could lead to a traumatic experience. So I think that we as individuals have some responsibility to prepare ourselves for birth, but actually to us, I think through workshops that we did last year, our focus is going to be on professionals and the system as a whole, because actually in a way, I think our feeling is, is that we need to support people in their vulnerability, you know, in that vulnerable state. And at the moment, we're not doing that. You know, we know that midwives are burning out, they're leaving the profession in the masses, obstetricians are burnt out, GPs are burnt out, there's a huge shortage of nurses and doctors in the UK. And actually, being able to be compassionate enough to hold somebody in that vulnerable state when you're completely burnt out yourself is just basically in our minds pretty impossible and that's what we're asking people to do day in and day out you know we don't really acknowledge how difficult that is for people to do and what we know there's some research being done by a great midwife called Sally Pizarro she's looking at compassion within midwives those kind of levels of burnout are much more likely to lead to those sort of interpersonal um, interactions that then will lead to trauma Mm. So it's complicated. I mean, we do have a video on the website if people are interested in finding out more, which kind of outlines our thinking about this. And I suppose the ways in which the focus on individuals can actually feel a bit blaming. You know, I think we often can go into birth feeling like as long as we're prepared enough, we'll come out okay. And actually, it doesn't matter how prepared you are. If you go in and you don't feel safe, then what can you do? You know, you're in a vulnerable position. I think some things that people can do in the here and now are 
thinking about their past experiences and what they might need. So thinking about when they've been in vulnerable situations before, they felt highly anxious because birth is a stressful experience. It can be a very positive experience, but it is also one where our bodies and minds are under some stress. So you can think about what was, how have you managed stress and anxiety in the past? What has helped you? Are you somebody who actually just wants to go off and sit on your own in a dark corner and just handle things by yourself and not be interrupted? Or actually, are you somebody who needs a lot of support and reassurance? You know, those are the kind of things that you can put into a birth plan. There's a much greater awareness around these kind of things now. So I think birth plans are much more likely to be taken seriously and also to be discussed at length with your midwife. You can also think about what is in your local area if you feel like you've got a history of any kind of mental health problem or if you're really anxious or worried about birth, you can ask to speak to a specialist mental health midwife. So those are people who will be able to usually be able to follow you through your whole antenatal and postnatal journey. They're different in different trusts, so it depends on what's available in your trust. And also you can find other professionals who might be around to help you. So um, I'm thinking particularly about doulas. So doulas are a guaranteed way of knowing that you have somebody who is with you through the whole process. Or some people also choose to have independent midwives, but there's a financial outlay for both of those things. I was going to say that because I, I always think of a doula as being something that you know really wealthy people mm, have right and you know to me that's like the dream is to have somebody who would have have you know carry through with you and yes give you yeah, that support yeah. and um facilitate conversations yes, for you and yeah. um but it, you know is there is there any way to kind of access if you haven't necessarily got the funds yeah. or is there anything similar that you can try and access well you can speak to, speak about we can talk about getting trainee doulas so it's different in different places I think um, and I don't know what the kind of current recommendations are but um, I know that in the past trainee doulas were paid at a reduced rate I don't know whether that's still the case um, but certainly something that people can check out but lots of doulas go into that profession because they are really passionate about helping women have a positive birth experience and they're there to hold you as a family you know they're not just there for the woman they're there to support the whole family and in a way because of that passion I mean all of the doulas that I know operate on sliding scales or are prepared to take part payments you know so that they'll do some sort of payment plan because it's really important to them that you have a positive birth experience so it's all it's always worth asking people in your local area and finding out what's available to you um, if it's something that is absolutely financially just not possible for you which it isn't of course for lots of people just think about who else could be there as a support for you who else do you know who could be there to support you through that whole journey somebody that you trust somebody that you feel that you could let yourself be open and vulnerable with Somebody who's been at other births would be a kind of preferable factor. I mean, the there was a Cochrane review done a few years ago that showed that one of the things that was really linked to a satisfactory birth outcome was having a woman there who's older than you who had experience of, of birth herself. So that could be a doula, that could be a family member, it could be a friend, but somebody that you just trust to be there with you to hold your hand and do what needs to be done to support you at a time where you might be feeling a, a little bit more vulnerable than usual. Yeah. So if someone's listening and they think, okay, I feel like I had a traumatic birth and I'm not, you know, coping massively well, what are the ways that, you know, someone can heal from this experience? Mm -hmm. 
Um, there's lots of different ways and I think that there's a bit of a spectrum so it depends on how affected you are by that birth experience so it may be that you just start off with journaling and you know writing about your birth experience thinking about what it was that that impacted on you that can actually be really helpful for some people for some people that can actually leave them feeling more distressed so mm-hmm. it's really important to just notice as you're doing that if you choose to do that you know what kind of feelings it's raising in you some people choose to write their birth story with somebody so it might be with a partner it might be with a friend sometimes it can be really helpful for you and your partner together to write down the birth experience so that you can compare and it can be really helpful to hear your partner's side of things because often actually where you felt very vulnerable or where you felt that you didn't cope very well they might have seen you actually being really you know powerful mm. and in control and you know thought that you managed as absolutely as best you could so I think sometimes hearing those different frames can be really helpful or different ways of viewing things and um, then you could ask for a birth debrief so they're called either birth debriefs or birth afterthoughts or birth reflections depending on where you are and um, you could ask about that you know if that, if that would be helpful for you to go back and look at your notes with somebody it can be really hard for people to go back to the place where they gave birth and yeah. often that's where birth debriefs happen you can request to do it somewhere else so that's something that some trusts will allow and yeah. um, or you can talk to somebody else so that might be a doula you know we might have somebody who just knows about birth if you feel that you're more affected then do go to your GP that's always our kind of first recommendation if you feel that you've got symptoms that are affecting your kind of day-to-day life speak to a healthcare professional kind of as a first port of call so that might be a GP midwife health visitor you can refer yourself to talking therapy services in lots of places around the UK we, we have sort of mixed uh, feedback on people's experiences of that. So I think that's something that's really changing and it's part of the NHS long-term plan that, that there will be more kind of perinatal psychology provision in that sort of primary care period. What we find is that a lot of people feel that they don't quite get the support that they need. And we've got a survey going at the moment. So um, we'd like, we're like we hoping to publish the results of that around Birth Trauma Awareness Week this year. Just looking at what people's experiences are of actually seeking help. And it's really mixed. So lots of people find help from lots of different avenues. Um, so that might be kind of primary care talking therapy services. Some people who have um, higher symptoms of a post-traumatic stress disorder will qualify to go to a perinatal mental health team or a community mental health team or a trauma service so it depends on where you are in different areas but there is a spectrum and at each point you know you can if you feel like actually I've gone to my local talking therapy service for example that helped a little bit but actually I still feel like I've got symptoms or I still feel like I'm not coping as I would like to you can also go and and speak to other organizations too so a lot of people find that a combination of different things will be there, will be kind of what works for them. So that might be medication for some people, that might be medication alongside talking therapies. Um, it might also be peer support, depending on where you are. The Birth Trauma Association has a great Facebook peer support group. And often people have these conversations on Instagram too. You know, we often have people having conversations on our threads at, at Birth Better on Instagram. 
and there will be you know kind of a, a real sense of solidarity there that, that can kind of grow around that community where just understanding that other people have had a similar experience and crucially that it wasn't your fault yeah. I think that's what it always comes down to yeah you aren't to blame that you aren't to blame and you've got a book you've written a book haven't you I have written a book which is coming out in July which will talk much more about all of those things you know different ways that you can recover and also background to trauma and why it is that we can have such a strong reaction to a birth experience so there's loads of places that people can go um for support and uh yeah that to kind of have that conversation with yes yeah yeah. which is great and it is just about starting that conversation i think for most people it is telling the story in a way that feels okay that you can feel heard you might have to try a few people before you get the response that you want you know we hear from lots of women who have started that conversation and they hear back the classic line but your baby's okay and you know that really shuts down any opportunity to take that further if that happens to you go and speak to somebody else you know there will be somebody out there who is really prepared and willing to hear and hold on to that experience yeah that's so important isn't it I mean you know, as a mum, you are just as important yes, as the baby yeah. being healthy. Like your health is as important. Yes, absolutely. And and you're so intertwined. Yeah. You know, actually, babies are so sensitive to our moods and our reactions too. And in a way, like that's, that's at the starting point that we have to look after ourselves if we're going to be able to look after our babies. Yeah, absolutely. Emma, thank you so much for being my guest today. You're so welcome. I, you, you know, just think that... You were uh, so interesting to listen to. And, you know, you you mentioned earlier that you were just talking and talking and talking, but I was just listening. <laughs> you know, I was kind of almost like forgetting what the next question was going to be because I was just kind of soaking up everything you were saying. So thank you so much. You're very well. Thank you so much for having me. I really hope that my chat with Emma was helpful to you and you can find out more at makebirthbetter.org. Thank you for listening and I'll catch up with you next time. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.